Father, we pray that you would be all of these things for us this morning. We need you to be every one. We pray you would be our vision, that your vision would fill our view, our spiritual view, our imagination, that you would fill our hearts and our minds with your glory through your word, that your wisdom would be known to us, that you would be our shield and our sword through the preaching this morning. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. Take a copy of the scriptures and open to the book of Genesis. The book of Genesis. The book of Genesis is the first book of the Bible. If you're new to scripture, this should make it easy. And we'll be in the first chapter of that book this morning. Well, some of you come to church to meet lots of people. Some of you come to church to meet no one if you can help it. Well, there's someone that I'd like you to meet this morning. In Genesis chapter 1, we get a proper introduction to the most important person and the one we're all here to meet today. Genesis chapter 1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was without form and void and darkness was over the face of the deep and the spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. And God said, let there be light. And there was light. And God saw that the light was good and God separated the light from the darkness and God called the light day and the darkness he called night. And there was evening and there was morning the first day. And God said, Let there be an expanse in the midst of the waters and let it separate waters from waters. And God made the expanse and separated the waters that were under the expanse from the waters that were above the expanse. And it was so. And God called the expanse heaven. And there was evening and there was morning the second day. And God said, let the waters under the heavens be gathered together into one place and let the dry land appear. And it was so. And God called the dry land earth, and the waters that were gathered together he called seas. And God saw that it was good. And God said, let the earth sprout vegetation, plants yielding seed, and fruit trees bearing fruit in which there is their seed, each according to its kind on the earth. And it was so. And the earth brought forth vegetation, plants yielding seed according to their own kinds, and trees bearing fruit in which is their seed according to its kind. And God saw that it was good, and there was evening and there was morning the third day. And God said, let there be lights in the expanse of the heavens to separate the day from the night, and let them be for signs and for seasons and for days and years, and let them be lights in the expanse of the heavens to give light upon the earth. And it was so. And God made the two great lights, the greater light to rule the day and the lesser light to rule the night and the stars. And God set them in the expanse of the heavens to give light on the earth, to rule over the day and over the night, and to separate the light from the darkness. And God saw that it was good, and there was evening and there was morning the fourth day. And God said, let the waters swarm with swarms of living creatures, and let birds fly above the earth across the expanse of heavens. And so God created the sea creatures and every living creature that moves, with which the waters swarm according to their kinds, and every winged bird according to its 
kind. And God saw that it was good. And God blessed them, saying, Be fruitful and multiply, and fill the waters and the seas, and let birds multiply on the earth. And there was evening and there was morning the fifth day. And God said, Let the earth bring forth living creatures according to their kinds, livestock and creeping things, and beasts of the earth according to their kinds. And it was so. And God made the beasts of the earth according to their kinds, and the livestock according to their kinds, and everything that creeps on the ground according to its kind. And God saw that it was good. Then God said, Let us make man in our image, after our likeness. And let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the heavens, and over the livestock, and over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image, and the image of God he created them. Male and female he created them. And God blessed them. And God said to them, be fruitful and multiply, and fill the earth and subdue it. And have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. And God said, behold, I have given you every plant yielding seed that is on the face of the earth and every tree with seed in its fruit. You shall have them for food and to every beast of the earth and to every bird of the heavens and to everything that creeps on the earth, everything that has breath of life. I have given every green plant for food and it was so. And God saw everything that he had made, and behold, it was very good. And there was evening and there was morning the sixth day. Thus the heavens and the earth were finished, and all the host of them. And on the seventh day, God finished his work that he had done, and he rested on the seventh day from all his work that he had done. So God blessed the seventh day and made it holy, because on it God rested from all his work that he had done in creation." Well, last week we began this book, this sermon series through this book of Genesis with a sermon that will function as an overview of the story itself, the beginning of our story we said this story is, the story of God's purpose and promise to bless his people. And we saw three echoes of blessing even in this creation chapter. It is God's purpose to create a fruitful, harmonious, happy, peaceful world and to add his blessing and favor to it. Well, today we begin two weeks on the account of creation. This week, in this first chapter, we get something of a a wide-angle lens on the creation. And then in chapter 2, a kind of narrow-angle, up-close look at the creation of humanity. That's in the second chapter for next week. And I'll admit, this is a bit of a daunting task to preach this chapter. I'm glad I decided not to bite both chapters uh, focusing on creation off at once. God had six whole days to get this done, and these chapters include everything that has ever been created. Uh, And it's my job to preach it to you so that you feel it and see it. I pray God's Spirit will add his blessing, add his life-giving, add his illuminating work to my work and our work together this morning. No doubt, if you knew we were studying the Bible's creation story, all manner of subjects came to mind. Maybe the age of the universe came to mind. Maybe dinosaurs came to mind. This is one of those books that uh, tends to attract many fixed agendas. Uh, 
and probing questions. But as we read this, as we've said, we find that it has an agenda of its own. And that agenda is revealed even in the word count of such a word as God, which appears 35 times in this short chapter. So all this chapter connects to every subject that there is. It has a subject of its own. And that subject is God himself. Its purpose is not scientific, though it does provide the worldview framework which gives rise to scientific enterprise. And while properly read, does not contradict science. But its purpose is in the main theological. This chapter is about creation, but first this chapter is about the God who creates. Who, who, the truth of which stands behind the God who redeems. And it's, as it's written, as we'll see, to teach us about the one true God and who we are in relationship to him. And it does this in some very beautiful and even some subtle ways. Beautiful through the way this account unfolds. I'll offer right now only one example of the symmetry and the detail that you find in this chapter. If you were to get out your Hebrew text and a calculator, which I do not recommend doing, Uh, which I don't recommend, uh, you would find some inescapable observations. You would notice that the first line of this chapter has seven words, and the second line has 14 words. Now, I have to keep going here, lest you think that I'm uh, a little nuts. I don't recommend making too much of numbers, except where it's patently obvious that the composer is holding out such things for us. The first line was seven words. The second line of this chapter has 14 words. And you would notice that the seventh paragraph represents the seventh day of creation and that it's composed of three sentences, each with seven words, and the middle phrase of which refers to the seventh day. And you would notice that God is mentioned 35 times, a multiple of seven. And you'd notice that multiple other lines are mentioned in multiples of seven, heavens and the earth, 21 times each. And there are other features along these lines that I will point out as we go. There's a beautiful perfection to this chapter, a perfectly written, perfectly composed message that speaks of the perfection of God, great care in its detail, which speaks to the great care and the detail of the creator who stands behind it. Through the poetry and its beauty and its symmetry and its perfection, it is speaking to us a theological message of the beauty and the perfection of God. This account teaches us about theology in this fashion. It also teaches us in, in what is for us a more subtle way. As we'll see, there are other creation accounts in the circulation. There are other conceptions of ultimate reality. There are other understandings of God or the gods on offer in the ancient Near East that were surrounding, even enveloping the people of God, even as they were in slavery in Egypt before they were delivered and received this book. And this book, indeed, this creation account comes to a people who have already been redeemed by God from the darkness of slavery in Egypt. And this creation account tells them about the God who saved them and that he is their creator. And so we'll compare creation accounts just a little bit before we're done. All of this speaks to us about God. Its purpose is theological. Its purpose is also, we need to say, historical. 
It's written in Hebrew narrative form that assumes historical truthfulness. This account is presented, as with the entirety of the book of Genesis, as history. And it's assumed as history by later biblical writers and Jesus himself. The question of days is often on our mind. Only a few comments on that. Since we live in an age in which the dominant creation story is one of an impersonal beginning and something from nothing, billions and billions of years ago, let me say that I ascribe to a view of the earth that is relatively young and that these days are literal days as we experience them. That's how it seems that the biblical authors that follow Genesis 1 understand what took place in Genesis 1. However, on the specific question of the exact length of these days, I would suggest we can have a measure of charity. As we'll see, the text speaks of days and evenings and morning before there is a sun and a moon. And there are a few other reasons why reasonable readers who are committed to inerrancy and the historical fact of Adam as a special creation and his historical fall into sin and those who would reject macroevolution as the explanation for how God made us may take this as literal history but understand these as something like God's working days analogous to our own. I think that's within bounds. Now, at Heritage, we embrace the former understanding, and it's my own, but this matter of length of days does not, in my view, belong in the same category as other doctrines such as the deity of Christ or God's special creation of Adam as an historical figure and not a figure who evolved to this point. So just some words on days, and we'll move on. The purpose of this account is theological. It's also historical It means to communicate actual history to us. But its purpose is more than theological and historical. It's also personal. And this was written for you and for me so that we would not just know about God, but so that we would know God. It was written for its original audience, its first readers, the people of Israel, the children of Abraham as a nation after their deliverance from Egyptian slavery so that they would know the God that stood behind their redemption. So that they would know the God who speaks to them. And so that they would know something of the power and the truthfulness and the finality of the word he speaks. Which we'll see. It's personal. So let's get to know him together this morning. In this first chapter, we don't just find answers to a variety of questions that we come with. We find a person. We find God himself. This is the first thing that God wants to say about himself to you and me as found on the first chapter of the Bible. I've spent a whole week in this, uh, parts of the week, and uh, there's plenty for me to get to know. So if you're brand new to the Bible, meet God. And if this is a very familiar chapter, let's keep getting to know God. He's taken great care to write this account for us, as I've detailed for you just in brief. So let's take great care to listen. On the Bible's first page, we meet the God who's the source Of everything. He is the source of everything. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. If you can see it, if you can touch it, if you can taste it, if you can detect it with an instrument, if it exists, God is before it. 
as the source of everything, he is before everything. And he's also over it. As the source of everything, he's sovereign over everything. There is nothing that he does not know. There is no place that he cannot see. There is no thought that is unrevealed to him. There is no power with which he must compete. He is over everything, for he is the source of everything. And since everything comes from him, there is nothing before God. There is nothing over God. And there is no God besides God. In our day, we are tempted without God's revelation and his grace to believe that he does not exist. And maybe that's where you find yourself this morning, wrestling with the question of whether or not there is a God. Scripture tells us that deep down you know there's a God. So I appeal to you to come, hear his word, and meet him. But I can respect the process of wrestling with the question, and we can be patient with you in that. I would encourage you this morning, maybe just to, at a minimum, agree to understand what the Bible says by way of introduction to God and and go from there. Seek understanding, even if it's not your desire, to know him. And I would appeal to you to get to know him in due course. So maybe that's you. But in Moses' day, everyone basically said not only that there's a God, but there are many gods. That was what was on offer. Everywhere you went, there was a God for something else. Every element of creation, every element of the material world, practically, uh, that would catch your notice, had a God assigned to it. Consider two delightful creation stories with me. Enuma Elish is a biography of Marduk, who is the chief god of Babylon. It's an ancient account that explains how he became the top god among all the Babylonian gods. And it's something of a taste of what was in the water, and in the spiritual air in the ancient Near East. The Babylonian gods were one big, unhappy family. When the older generation attempted to annihilate the younger generation, Marduk traps the leader of the younger gods in his net, inflates her with wind so that he cannot, uh, she cannot shut her mouth, and shoots an arrow down her throat. It enters her heart, and she dies, and Marduk leaps on her corpse, cuts her in two, and uses one part to make the sky and the other part to make the earth. There's a creation story. And it continues. He appointed the moon and the sun to govern the days and months and years. And he also declared that Babylon would be a holy city and a conference center for the gods when they came down to earth. And he commissioned another god to create mankind in order to relieve some of the gods from their chores. Thus, a god was killed and from his blood, humanity was made. And Marduk was given 50 names and children throughout Babylon learned all 50 names of Marduk. And so that particular story's accent, emphasis, agenda is to give the story of how Marduk became the first of the gods and the prominence of Babylon in the world cities. Well, how about another creation account? This time Marduk's ancestors and this creation account probably more contemporary with with Israel in this wilderness generation. After 3,600 years of cooking and serving food for the chief God, whose name I could not pronounce, and it was only two letters, um, but I'm in a room of educated people, and no doubt there are two of you who are familiar with these things better than me, so I won't embarrass myself by trying. The working gods protested, setting their tools on fire around the chief God's house. Some things never change. 
His housekeeper woke him up and he decided to form a compromise. He created mankind by killing a god and mixing his blood with clay to form seven human couples inside the womb goddesses, seven womb goddesses acting as midwives. And after 600 years, mankind and their activities became too noisy and so the gods developed plagues, natural disasters of various kinds to limit the expansion of the human population. So there you have something of an explanation of where humanity came from and why we have so much trouble with the natural, the natural world. And it's a distant relationship through midwives. This account also gave an explanation for the, the, uh, the role of midwives in that culture. Well, the Bible begins with no such struggle. The Bible begins with no such violence. You won't find any of that on this first chapter. And that's significant. No such violence. When we make up our own creation stories, we read on to the gods all of our faults and all of our sin and all of our trouble and all of our violence, but it did not start that way. There is no one before God. There is no one over God, and there are no gods besides God. He is the only God, and he is not like us. And unlike so many imagined gods, the true God is not detached and disinterested in his creation as though we're some kind of afterthought. He is up close and personal. Look with me in verse two. The earth was without form and void. Note that it was without form and void and darkness was over the face of the deep and the spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. There is no sun God here. There is no moon God. There is only darkness There is no God of the sea. There is only God hovering over the sea. Just God's original creation material, like a lump of clay before a potter slapped down on the table. That's the earth, formless and void, an empty earth without shape, covered in water. You can't see it if you took a picture for there's no light. And the spirit of God hovers. The same word Moses used to describe God in Deuteronomy 32. Like an eagle that stirs up its nest. That flutters or hovers over its young. It's a a term that communicates care. Personal investment. And a readiness to raise it to life. God by his spirit hovers over the waters. No disinterested, impersonal, preoccupied God. Here he is, ready to work. Well, how will God make that formless and empty mass of earth into the world teeming with life? How difficult will this be for him? We've met the God who's the source of everything. Now, meet the God who speaks forth his creation. Meet the God who speaks forth his creation. There's no fighting here. There's no difficulty. There's not even trying. There's just speaking. And God said, and God said for six days, and God said. It's the only tool he needs, and it's good for all that he wants to do. And as God said, it was so. This form of creation speaks to something of the ease with which he goes about it. The command he has 
as his thoughts move to action almost as effortlessly. No, we must say more effortlessly than you move your body about or speak with words. It happens as he wills it, wills it by his word. In fact, the six days of creation include three days of forming and three days of filling. Remember that the earth was without form and void. Well, here in six days of creation, he forms it and he fills the emptiness. God speaks to form his creation. In day one, he speaks to form the light. And so we have light and we have dark. In day two, he speaks to form the sky, separating the water from below from the water above. And in day three, he speaks to form the land. Three days of majestic, sweeping, huge scale forming. Now followed by three days of detailed, up-close, intricate, fine-tuning, and filling. You can think of this like something uh, like a builder who paves the roads and lays a foundation and puts up the framing and the walls and then makes another pass to move in. Pictures on the wall, paint on the wall, appliances installed, and all of the refined, perfect details just ready for home. So God has formed the earth and now he fills the earth. He formed light. And now on day four, he places the sun and the moon as if an afterthought, the stars. And so he fills the earth with order. The sun and the moon and the stars providing a sense of order to time. Days and months and years click on by order of God's celestial spheres. And also the stars, he says, not to be missed. Stephen Hawking's in his best-selling book, some 250 weeks on the bestseller list at the top in his book, The Brief History of Time. He speaks of our galaxy as an average-sized spiral galaxy that looks to other galaxies like a swirl and a pastry roll that it is 100,000 light years across, which is about 6 trillion miles. He says, we now know that our galaxy is only one of some 100,000 million galaxies that can be seen using modern telescopes. Each galaxy itself containing some 100,000 million stars. He created the sun, And he hung the moon to help us keep time and also the stars. The earth is not the center of the universe in terms of its spatial orientation. The earth is, theologically speaking, the center of all that God has made. And on it, you and me, as we'll see. He formed the sky and the seas. And now on day five, he speaks to fill both with life. He fills the sky with birds and he fills the seas with swarming creatures. Some that I wish he had never made. YouTube ugly seeing bottom feeders. Maybe they're an effect of the fall. 
Maybe not. In any case, he made them all. And he formed the land. And now on day six, he speaks to fill the land with creatures. And so God has formed the world in three days. And in three more days, corresponding to the first three days, he circles back around to fill the world. Almost like creating a connect the dots paper for you kids. And then coming back around to fill it out and to color it in with rich detail. You can see the beauty and the intricacy of the creation account speaking to the beauty and the intricacy of the God who creates and the world he made. Well, God has spoken forth by his word, his creation. But now in verse 26, surely you noticed this. Then God speaks to himself. And then he said, let us make man in our image after our likeness and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. And verse 27, this is the only part of creation that gets, that gets a poem. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And then God spoke to them. He spoke creation into being. He pondered within himself the creation of man and then made us. And then he actually speaks to us. He doesn't do that for rocks or animals or plants. Verse 28, and God blessed them and God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it. And have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. And so in the creation of humankind, we meet the God who spreads his glory. We meet the God who spreads his glory. God makes us in his image in order to share his glory with us and through us to spread his glory throughout his entire creation. He makes us in his image and then he spreads us out. Be fruitful and multiply. What does it mean to be made in the image of God? What does that mean? Any youngster first wonders if God has a face and a nose and hair like we do. 2,000 years have provided us with no shortage of thoughts on this subject. But I don't think that it's terribly difficult. Nevertheless, Some have said that it means we're made in God's physical likeness, but that would work against so many scriptures that are so plain that God is not to be seen. Some have said that it means we're like God in some specific ways, such as intellect or the ability to relate and have relationships of a certain fashion. And I would call that the feature view. It's it's so we're creatures who live and breathe and we're animated, but we have certain features that are like God's features. But others have closer, I believe, in saying that to be made in God's image has to do with a special status and relationship given that status in relationship to God. I'll just give you two words, sons and rulers. What is it to be made in the image of God? To be sons And as sons, therefore rulers. Let me develop this a little bit for you. In the ancient Near East, a king would set up a statue in a conquered land as an indication of his dominion in that place. The statue was not him. The statue represented him. 
The statue represented the extension of his rule, his, the presence of his, his reign and his glory in that conquered place. And to see the statue was to know where you were at and to know whom you belonged and to know who was there, if you will. The statue was in the image of the king and where the image went, so the king went the representative of the king in that place. Well, the image represented that king's relationship to the sphere of his rule. But there is a vertical dimension to this as well that has to do with the horizontal dimension of image. It represents rule and authority. But there's a vertical dimension as well for even in the king Egypt, the king was said to be in the image of God because the king was a son of God. A king was a royal figure. A king was even deity because he was the son of the God. He was in the image of God. And and where the king's image went, so the king's authority went. Well, consider with me in Genesis chapter 5. We get the book of the generations of Adam. Humanity represented in Adam. When God created man, he made him in the likeness of God, male and female, he created them and blessed them and named them man as they were created. And when Adam had lived 130 years, he fathered a son in his own likeness after his image and named him Seth. So Adam has a son after his own image. And in Luke chapter 3, we see Jesus' genealogy, which goes back through the son of Seth, who is the son of Adam, who was the son of God. This idea of being made in the image of God indicates a special relationship to God as as son. Something, a designation not given to any other part of the creation. You and I are princes, by extension, certainly princes and princesses of the God of heaven. We belong to him. Here's what this means. You and I are in the image of God, sons of God, his special creation. And as sons of God, as God's image, we have rule over creation. This is why he says, I made them in my image, have dominion over everything. I give you everything, every plant, every tree, every creature. The whole thing is yours. God is extending his own rule over his creation, which he has made by means of those made in his image humanity. There is God, there is creation, and between them, if you will, there is another creation, namely men and women, humanity made in God's image to whom he gives all of creation as as a trust, as stewards of his own rule. So now listen with me to Psalm chapter 8, which is itself a word-for-word commentary on Genesis chapter 1. Listen to these words as the psalmist meditates in the morning after his reflection on Psalm on Genesis 1 on all that it means. He says, "O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. You have set your glory above the heavens. How is his glory, his majesty spread through all the earth?" He says, "When I look at your heavens and the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have set in place, What is man that you are mindful of him, the son of man that you care for him? Yet you have made him a little lower than the heavenly beings, and you have 
crowned him with glory and with honor. And you have given him dominion over the works of your hands. You have put all things under his feet, all sheep and oxen, and also the beasts of the field, the birds of the heavens, and the fish of the sea, whatever passes along the paths of the seas. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. God's majesty, his rule in the earth is seen in the presence of those who bear his image to whom he has given the earth. God has made the world, in the creation of humankind, God places his signature on it. You and I are his signature. We're his seal. And we're those through whom he spreads his glory to the outer edges of his earth. God spoke to form and to fill the world. But when he makes us in his image, and then he spoke to himself about his plans to fill the earth with his glory and his name and his rule, and then he spoke to us a word of blessing and gave us the entire creation, every plant and bird and thing, everything that has the breath of life, he signed his name on his work of art. And where his signature goes, where his image goes, where his representation goes, so there goes his rule. This is not just another creation story. Can you see it? Our God is not like anything that humans come up with when they imagine God. We are not an afterthought created by some hireling or given birth to by some surrogate goddess. We are hand-fashioned by God himself. We are not the underbelly of the world. We're not a racket to be quieted. We are not an army of slave workers to feed the gods. And we are not here to work for him, to work his ground and to feed him. He gives and he feeds and he blesses. And we're the object of his special blessing and his focused attention. This is the theological message of the first chapter of the Bible. We are not as important as God, but we are invested with his image in all of our dignity is derived from him. We are at the same time absolutely small. Who is man that you are mindful of him? And yet he has set his glory and his honor on us. Which means that the dignity of every human person is not derived from our size, is not derived from our ability or our dependence or our independence or our attractiveness, but by the very fact that we are human. Every family member of yours, every coworker, every neighbor, every person who believes in God, every person who believes in many gods, every person who believes in no God is made in the image of God. And I count five reasons so far more than that, to indicate the special status of human beings in this creation story worth gathering at this point. We were made last. The rest of creation was made as an environment for us and given to us. God deliberates before creating us. He gives creation to our charge. He writes us a poem. And most importantly, he makes us in 
his image. And there's another indication of the specialness of humanity to God. And it comes in verse 31. And God saw everything that he has made. And behold, it was very good. And there was evening and morning the sixth day. You'll remember the refrain, it was good. It was good. It was good. Well, here, he's made humanity and his smile brightens all the more. Here, it was very good. After he makes us very good. The creation of human beings is the climax of God's creative work. But it's not the conclusion. For now we meet the God who is satisfied in his work. Chapter 2 verses 1 through 3. Thus the heavens and the earth were finished. All the host of them. And on the seventh day God finished his work that he had done. And he rested on the seventh day from all his work that he had done. So God blessed the seventh day and made it holy because on it God rested from all his work that he had done in creation. God formed the earth and then God filled the earth and then he filled it with his glory by stamping human beings with his image. And now his work, he says, is finished. And having finished his work, it says God rested from his work. A curious phrase, certainly for how we use it. It does not mean he slept. This is not a rest from exhaustion. This is a rest for enjoyment. This is God entering into the pleasure and the enjoyment of all that he has made. I came home uh, yesterday uh, between prep blocks for this sermon. And Christy said, The kids worked through all of their checklists and they did a great job cleaning up and now they're playing. And I thought, give me one moment, I'm going to write that down because that illustrates rest right here. Um, They're resting from their work, but they're entering into the full enjoyment of what they have prepared for. And so if you come home from a long day of work and have a seat in your favorite chair, you may look still, you may look as though you're resting But you are actually, even from that seat, if you're the head of the home, ruling your home from the chair. And you can jump at a moment's notice. You aren't checked out. If you're awake, I guess. God doesn't sleep. And so God rests to rule. He rests to enter into the enjoyment of his creation. And so the first readers of this short conclusion would understand that God has hardwired into creation certain rhythms for our good, certain rhythms to point us to him, certain rhythms of seven by which we express our dependence upon him. In this rest theme, there's more to say on. When Jesus says, come to, all, come to me all who are weary and I will give you rest, that's an offer to enter into this relationship with God whereby all things are right and where we're at peace with him and our work and our striving, even for our own salvation, is put down because he's done it all. More to expand on there over the years as we work through the Bible. But right here, as with so many other themes, we get the introduction of an important idea for the rest of the story. Well, here is a perfect, harmonious, happy creation. And it's not exactly as we know it, is it? 
Well, the first readers would have understood that as they read this, it's not as they knew it either, for they had known hundreds of years in Egyptian slavery. They would know a world in chaos. They would know a world in darkness out of which they were, they were brought. And you and I, too, know a world in darkness. You and I, too, know lives of chaos that need order. You and I, too, are recipients of a word from God. God, we have met this morning, the Father from whom all things and for whom we exist, introduces us as Scripture unfolds to the Christ through whom are all things and through whom we exist. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. In this God, who has spoken the world into existence, who said, let there be light, to you and me who suppress all of the truth that we see about God in creation, to you and me who are blinded and are born in darkness, calls out to us and says, let there be light. And so as we read this creation account, its purpose is not merely to teach us about the God who called light into being, but to give us the confidence that the God who can call light into being can call you out of darkness and into his marvelous light. And in the face of Jesus Christ, revealed in his word, even preached and sung this morning, you are given a vision of Jesus Christ in all of his glory. And I pray you see it. I pray you know the light. I'm looking forward to getting to know God better with you as we work through the story of our beginnings in Genesis. Let's pray. Father, we pray to you as the one who made the mountains and brought them forth and formed the earth and the world, who is from everlasting to everlasting and who is God. And we marvel at the world that you have made. We even marvel at our incredible ability to forget you and to ignore you, and even to argue in our minds against you in order that we might be bigger in this world. But we confess this morning that we are creatures, and you are the great creator. And we confess this morning that we are blind apart from your help, but you, the God who says, let there be light, has shown light in our hearts to give us the knowledge of Jesus Christ and of your glory in his face. Father, we pray that Heritage Bible Church would be a place where the lights are on, where the lights are on in our eyes, where the lights are on in our faces, and where the lights are on on our lips, and where the lights are on in our homes. It's in Christ's name we pray all these things in such gratefulness to you for him. Amen.